0: can your local library help you create a podcast, a video, community media, or make better community media? That's the topic for today's Radio Survivor. This is Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel, and joining me momentarily will be my co-hosts, Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits. And today we are talking about libraries and Community media. And to help us explore the topic, joining us will be Sam Mills. She is a librarian at the Vancouver Public Library in Vancouver, Canada, British Columbia, and Sarah Felcar, who is a librarian at the West Vancouver Memorial Library. At both these libraries, they have the resources where you can go and create podcasts, create videos, and create all sorts of digital media. But it's so much more than that. Libraries have a lot of resources to help out communities and community media. And they're going to explain this way better than I can. So without further ado, let's jump into that conversation.
1: But well, we're on the line with Sarah Felkar, librarian at the West Vancouver Memorial Library, and Sam Mills, librarian in the Programming Learning Department at the Vancouver Public Library. And we're talking about...
0: Libraries, libraries and, podcasting. and podcasting, and I had a chance to see a panel discussion, which both Sam and Sarah headed up at PodCon. So we've, which keeps giving us dividends. Our, uh, we went to yeah. this podcasting conference in Seattle back at the beginning of December 2017. Saw these great, great sessions. Uh, one of which was all about uh, podcasts and libraries, or how podcasters can make use of libraries, and I learned. So much, and I, I didn't want to keep all that knowledge just for myself. Uh, I was hoping that we could share it with uh, the Radio Survivor listeners. And the first thing that really jumped out to me, because it never occurred to me this could even exist, is, Sam, there at the uh, Vancouver Library, you have something called uh, the, uh, the uh, Inspiration Lab, where we people can do. come and make podcasts. Tell us about that.
2: Uh, Yeah, so the Inspiration Lab is a space. uh, It's about 7,000 square feet um, at the Central Library in downtown Vancouver. And it opened, gosh, almost three years ago in spring of 2015. Um, And the intent was really to sort of move beyond just providing people with access to stories um, and provide them with the tools to make their own and to specifically make their own in digital media since that is where increasingly most of our stories are being told. Um, and we were certainly aware the whole time in the development of it that podcasting was one big way that was happening. So that was part of the core programming at the beginning for sure. Um, but yeah, that was the focus. So you know a lot of libraries have gotten into maker spaces and they've done things like having 3D printers available or, you know, teaching people to program small robots and machines. And that's that's amazing stuff. But because it was already happening in the city and other libraries, we thought, well, Let's make our focus on story. So the tools we have in the lab are all um, all focused in that direction. So microphones, mixers, um, small sound booths, larger sound booths, um, and actually a large studio that has an adjacent uh, control room as well. And uh, all of the kind of tools and software t- that go with those, as well as lots of ways to learn. So online courses, as well as courses that we teach in the library.
0: So Sam, if I'm just a member of the public... And I've heard about podcasting. I'm a big podcast fan. I've decided, geez, I'd like to explore making my own podcast. I can walk into the inspiration uh, lab and, and someone there can, can help get me started. How's it work?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, so we have, uh, we have dedicated staff for the space and it is open whenever the library is open, which is usually nine to nine most days, except for the weekend. And uh, like the lab is still open on the weekend, but our hours are slightly shorter. So yeah, I mean, all you need is a library card. So if you walk right in and you march up to the lab, they're probably gonna send you down one floor to sign up for a library card, mm-hmm. first of all, if you don't have one. Mm-hmm. But once you've got one of those, uh, assuming it has less than $10 in fines on it, you are absolutely good to go. So if you're the kind of person Who learns by doing? You can just book a space that's available that day in one of the studios. Um, They're quite in demand, so that might be a short time period, or you might have to wait a couple of days to get a space. But once you're in, you can just start using that equipment. So we've got uh, online guides and online courses that you can do on the computer right there while you're in there with the mic and the mixers, or our staff can also give you a little demo and help you get started and answer any troubleshooting questions that come up. but if you're somebody who, you know, wants a bit more of an introduction than that, we also run drop-ins every week to just kind of learn about the space and the tools that are available. And then we also run classes pretty often. Um, most of our regular classes are run at least once every quarter of the year. And we do have some that are specifically on learning how to record and edit audio.
0: And is any of this kind of podcast specific? Or are you mostly teaching folks just really how to, how to record audio at this point?
2: So when the lab first opened, we did focus on podcasting quite a bit. We had a couple of classes um, that I was privileged to be able to write the first drafts of, actually, because I was a podcaster at the time, um, that were specifically about like, OK, first of all, what is a podcast? <laughs> so if people were just kind of curious um, And maybe not even interested in making one themselves, but just wanted to know what this thing was. We had sort of a short history of the medium and some samples and some um, explanations around how people make them. And then we had a second class that was specifically around um, planning and producing a podcast. Those classes, I don't think, are currently being run. And so instead, the focus has shifted um, because there have been so many different types of demands on the audio recording and editing facilities um, they've shifted to teaching classes that are a little broader mm-hmm. and are on more just how to use the equipment and the software.
0: And and so did, did sort of the the shift happen because there was a little less demand specifically around podcasting, or more just because you only have you only have so much uh, time and staff to go around, and so you want to kind of uh, teach as broadly as you can.
2: Um, I'd say it was a little of both, and I'd say it's also definitely connected to. Kind of teaching and reference philosophy that we have across the entire library, which is we try as much as possible to meet people at their point of need. And so if somebody comes in and they want specifically to learn about how to podcast, the staff there can still help them get started, talk to them about what their ideas are, help them find online resources either on the web or through the library uh, to help them get started. But But we don't necessarily run the classes themselves. And I think the other thing, too, is that the spaces, especially the one space that we call the live room, which is really set up for podcasting, because you can sit around with multiple people and multiple mics in the same space, are so in demand by local podcasters who kind of know what they're doing, but Mm -hmm. don't have the resources to all get together in a big room with a bunch of mics, that that I think the, the focus has shifted a little to teaching the broad skills and then making the spaces available and helping people with
0: questions as they come up. Oh, so you really have a lot of demand. And I'm
3: curious, so if somebody is regularly recording their podcast there.
1: In the Vancouver Public Library.
3: Yeah, is it challenging for them to book the space at a regular time every week and how do you manage the demand?
2: um so one of the ways that it's managed is from the very beginning um and this is a policy that seems to have served us well we have only released two weeks of bookings at a time (laughs) so people can't you know book up everything or you know every single monday till the end of time but if they get used to you know when those two weeks get released they can kind of go on every couple of weeks and make the bookings they need to um and the space certainly isn't um, being used over capacity most of the time. Um, the stats that I got from my marketing staff, actually in prep for this interview, uh, say that it's, it's about at 85% capacity most of the time. Um, and most of the most of that remaining, like 15%, is sort of small little gaps throughout the day. Most people will use the studios for the maximum amount of time, which is three hours. And so, you know, if someone books a three-hour chunk and someone else books one that's half an hour later, those little gaps are often what's left. Uh, so if you drop in, you're kind of, you know, you might end up with one of the smaller studios or you might need to come back the next day, but there is online booking and that seems to serve most people pretty well for their regular recording needs.
0: Wow. I mean, it seems like you tapped into some pent up demand there to see this type of, I mean, 85% usage of any sort of public resource like this. Um, it, it, it seems to me is is amazing I was I
2: was pretty impressed by that number, too. And I was talking to Erin um, to Rickfield, my colleague, who is the assistant manager in charge of the team that runs the space, and she was saying that the, the thing they definitely see the most demand for is the live room itself. Mm. So there is like a larger studio with a separate control room. There are three smaller kind of two-person or one-person studios. But that live room space where you can have, you know, five people sit around a few mics and you've got direct access to the computer a perfect podcasting setup, in other words, uh, is really the one that's the most in demand.
3: And is everybody using it for recording? You know, because I'm sure that you don't have stipulations about, like, do people book the room for other purposes besides recording? Just out of curiosity.
2: there are some broad policies around both use of the spaces, um, like the studios themselves, as well as the computers in that area, which are more high powered and have more specialized creative software on them. So the idea is that you are supposed to be using the space for its intended purpose (laughs) because there are lots of other study spaces and regular computers to use throughout the building. Um, That said, I have heard from my colleagues that people do occasionally book those spaces as like practice spaces, (laughs) um, especially musicians. And I mean, that's fine, right? We're still meeting a need with those spaces. Um, I'm sure if somebody was was making like a lot of use of the space and obviously not using the recording capabilities. There might be a conversation about, you know, sharing the space just like we occasionally have with all of our spaces.
1: That's the voice of Sam Mills, librarian with the Vancouver Public Library in the Central Branch where they have podcasting studios. They don't call them podcasting studios. They call them uh, the Inspiration Lab. They're they're used to record music, sound, voices. I'm assuming also, uh, Sam, that... These uh, studios have uh, calling capabilities, Skype, phone calls.
2: They do, yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you're recording by distance, as we are now, that's a thing you can do in those spaces. Um, but also we do see them used by people who, you know, need a, a safe and quiet space to do a job interview over Skype, Skype or
1: things like that. Yeah, that's that's yeah. wonderful. I love, I love this idea. So I'm, ex- you know, myself, Eric Klein here at Radio Survivor, Intimately familiar with an idea of what a community radio station is and how you get access to it. And I love the idea that there's, um, another space where it can be used for, ex- for a lot of overlap. And yet, um, I know from my life experience at, at work at a community radio station that sometimes uh, members of the public would come in and, and use the studio f- for a job interview. And that would sort of, um, that was sort of uh, raised the hackles of other staff members, you know, we're a radio station, not a public library. And so what a wonderful, <laughs> what a wonderful thing that there is a public library where, um, th- th- you know, these kinds of uses that are extremely important to community members don't have to be as closely policed. Makes me happy.
2: It makes me really proud to be a part of it and to see it. Yeah. Being, being used this well, almost uh, three years into its life. So, so
1: are is the Vancouver Public Library system content neutral do you guys do you guys know what's going on on your quote unquote airwaves
2: um we don't and i think honestly for the most part that is a good thing yeah. um i mentioned the windows and certainly because we are a public building um and anybody can come in we do want to have a sense of what's happening in all those spaces right. just in case there, yeah. um and so it, it it does slightly affect the soundproofness but you know it was a compromise that we had to make um so certainly the staff who work in the space can see what's going on but in terms of hearing what's going on that mostly happens because people get really excited that they made this amazing thing in our space and they want to share it with us
1: wow well tell tell me a little <laughs> so, bit about that oh and Sarah, Felcar, a librarian at West Vancouver, did you have perhaps uh, an example of something you have heard that uh, makes you happy to be providing this public service?
4: At our library, um, we do have um, what we call our multimedia studio, which has um, specialized uh, equipment, again, and software. Similar, but not identical. But uh, we some of the stuff that makes me happy is we've got some young YouTubers that will often Mm -hmm. uh, use our space to record, like, bits of their cooking shows or uh all sorts of things there's a father and a daughter who come in to work on um i think theirs is a podcast and Mm -hmm. it's absolutely just really wonderful for us to be like we're providing that community infrastructure um that allows members to participate in the the new creative economies it's it's really really great that's
1: the voice of sarah felkar librarian at the west vancouver library uh, where there's a much smaller facility than the main branch of the Vancouver Public Library, but yet uh, both both places are providing a uh, public space for members of a uh, library card holding members of the public to come in and record uh, community media.
2: that's actually been a nice bonus for us too is um is when the space when the inspiration Lab first opened at VPL, there were a lot of folks who sort of, you know, were a little younger and hipper looking than necessarily pe- the most people who hang out in the library all day. Right. And, uh, and they would come in and go, Oh, this is so awesome. I heard about this. How do I use this? And we would send them down to get a library card and then they would find out about all the other things you can do with your library. <laughs>
1: Books. It's, so,
0: it's a gateway. Kind of too, yeah. Um, That's
2: funny. Two ways to look at it.
0: You know, I, and I think it's interesting, you know, mentioning the sort of broadening aspect of community media here, you know, often here at radio survivor, we get very focused on radio and podcasting. But Sarah, you brought up how folks are using it to populate their YouTube channels, right? So you and I, I and that's probably happening there at the uh, main Vancouver library as well. Sam. Absolutely, yeah. In some ways, some people sometimes conceive of that as being sort of very individualistic and very isolated. Uh, but in, at the same time, it is a community media, and and I think that a lot of the folks, especially young people, making. YouTube videos or, or uh, maintaining YouTube channels, a lot of it is about audience and, and developing a community. It may be more of a virtual community rather than serving people who are, who are right around uh, in physical proximity, but you know, really interacting a lot with folks who, who follow them and watch their videos. And do, you, do, do either of you have a chance to sort of interact or talk much with the young people uh, using these uh, facilities for that sort of purpose?
4: Not with my new job, um, since I supervise <laughs> the department, um, it is my my team members uh, who have the opportunity to interact mostly, but every month, I do get stories that are are great that are sent to me, and once or twice um, I have had a chance to interact with them. Um, I primarily interact with more of our seniors um, than our our younger members of the community, but um, i I am very grateful for a team that, you know, we're curious. It's like, oh, what are you using the room for? And, uh, oh, what are you working on? Do you need help, you know, getting a resource for that? Um, because we are a, a small system, um, you do get that opportunity to do a lot more. Like, tell me more about this project that you're working on.
1: Yeah. And so you just mentioned uh, Sarah Felgar of the West Vancouver M- Memorial Library that um, you're working closer with seniors there in your role. So uh, tell us about that. What are they making?
4: especially in our communities, um, right now, there's been a big push around digital inclusion and finding, um, we have a couple of seniors that are really into, um, is recording audio for either like volunteer, um, audio projects, like LibriVox. Um, also in Canada, we have, um, some copyright exemptions for digitizing, um, books for the, um, disabled uh, uh-huh. so either visual or, or perceptual disabilities um, And so there is a lot a big push in BC and other provinces to um, provide you know human red, Um, Versions of these books instead of just the computer-generated voice. Yeah. So that's something our seniors are really interested in. And then general memory projects. Um, We have a bunch of um, university sort of led and also community led and library led programs around. You know, taking um, digitizing some of your old photos or videos and then recording a story behind it verbally. Mm. So you can say, Uh uh, it's a really cool, often multi-week program where it's like you. Find your story, you sort of write your story, and then you work with uh, either a university um, student, grad student, or a librarian to, um, you know, put that story in words, record it, and then have some, you know, either a slideshow or a movie clip.
1: Well, I I just want to know where I can find those things? Are they being held privately or are they being uploaded somewhere publicly?
4: Uh, The one drawback I would say with some of our older populations is the idea of putting things on the internet Yeah, uh, may not be their favorite thing to do, Um, but we're definitely, (laughs) 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 we're definitely a thing that um, my library will be working on. Um, If I can, I might be able to track something down, um, but offhand I don't know that we've published much that's a piece that's been interesting since the beginning
2: of the inspiration lab at at vpl as well as is um we don't have a way currently yet to host things for people the one thing we do have is an indie authors collection that people can submit their self-published ebooks to at vpl but um but yeah, I, I've noticed that age spread as as well. Um, a lot of the younger folks are the ones who will send us afterwards their link to their YouTube video right. of their, you know, ukulele album or of their podcast that's now up and running thanks to the help they got in the lab. But um, but often the folks who are like a little older are more into using the space and the digitization equipment to preserve memories for people within their own families Um, I actually had this, this amazing woman who I think at the time was like already 70 or so, uh, the first year that the inspiration lab opened and she came marching up to us and she said she wanted to make, she said she wanted to make an ebook. And I started talking to her about what she actually wanted to do. And what she had was this beautiful notebook that she'd been keeping for her grandchildren and pasting photographs and pieces from magazines and old books into it and telling them about how things were when she was a kid. what telephones were like or Mm -hmm. you know what she did when she hung out with her friends and things like that and we kind of slowly realized that what she wanted to do was much more like a video she wanted to be able to narrate it and put the images and the words together and so we started teaching her to use the scanners and she would scan each page of the notebook and then we taught her to use windows movie maker since it was the simplest video software we had and uh and she started doing narrations in the sound booths as well. And a lot of the time when she came back in after being away for a week or two, she would have to kind of relearn some of the skills, but she was incredibly patient. And, uh, and we, you know, we worked with her and we were always so happy when she was there. We would always, you know, hey, Laverne, how's it going? What part of your project are you on? Everybody got to know her. And, uh, and then she sent us the finished product. She didn't want us to share it anywhere, but she did send it to us so that we knew that, you know, she had finished it.
0: Wow. Wow. And that was Sam Mills. She's a librarian at the Vancouver Public Library. We're also speaking with Sarah Felkar, who's at the West Vancouver Public Library in British Columbia, Canada. This is Radio Survivor. This is the Sound of Strong Communities. And we're talking about libraries and, and podcasting and radio, and it's really about community media and about digital inclusion. It's about how these tools can be used by a broad spectrum of people to both communicate maybe broadly, you know, to broadcast, whether it's on the radio or on podcasting or by YouTube, or maybe narrowcast. We just heard an example of right. a of, of a of a person who wanted to record her memories and, and, and for her grandchildren and do so in a multimedia way, to use the digital tools, scanners, cameras, video sure. to help make this maybe more accessible to I call future it,
1: generations. I call it family podcasting.
0: Family podcasting. There you (laughs) are.
2: Family casting.
1: Yeah, I'm a I'm a family podcaster.
0: And oh yes, and it's interesting how this all loops together, right? And to sort of break out. You know, podcasting or to break out, YouTubing as as distinct silos it doesn't always make sense. A lot of the tools are similar. A lot of the objectives are similar. Sure. And and as we are hearing here at both the Vancouver Public Library and the West Vancouver Memorial Library, uh, there there is the the both the tools and the space as well as the training and other things to help make all of this uh, more accessible. And uh, Sarah, I want to ask you, you know, so if I come in. Um, and I'm interested in learning more and maybe I don't necessarily need to use a a studio or something like that. I mean, can, is there someone there who can, at your library, can help me kind of better understand maybe what even I need to do? It may, I want to podcast at home for my own reasons, but what I need to do to kind of get up and running.
4: Oh, for sure. Um, one thing we're lucky to have is we have several staff who, um, have a background with, um, podcasting and, um, music recording, um, librarians and library staff tend to be very creative individuals. And it's been great. I think Sam's experienced this too with the launch of the Inspiration Lab is it um, in working with a, a public organization, you get people that are just really highly creative and giving of their, their time and energy in, in different ways. Uh, so you might come across, if you walk in the front doors with someone who's like, yes, you know, I've, I've done this myself. Let me give you uh, a list of tools and resources. Um, we have um, a collection of podcasting resources um, as a list just on our website. We've mm. got a couple of of you know books because we are still a library uh, that enjoys print materials. If you work on a desk at a library, you're there to help you find the resources you need, whether it be the best deal on the best microphone for your um, your home, or to have a nice discussion with you about soundproofing needs, or discussing the differences and Whatever you need, um, even if someone is like, well, I don't know about that myself. Um, we bring um, curiosity and openness to every question that we ask uh, and in any topic. And uh, it is one of the joys of, of being a public librarian.
0: So is it fair to say then that even if someone is in a different city where maybe they, they don't have these digital media um, types of specific resources in their public library, they ought to be able to walk in. And talk with a librarian and she or he will probably be able to help them out one way or another that and get the answers to their questions, whether or not the person they're talking to is is a podcaster in actuality.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'll echo what Sarah's saying about sort of library staff tend to be very curious people and also tend to be people, of course, who are trained to answer questions and to dig deeply and to ask you more questions about your need and try to, you know, match that need to to the information that you're after. I think um, one, of the, one of the really fantastic things about this explosion of digital technology and libraries is that it's revealed that, you know, a reference question is a reference question is a reference question. And we might not know the answer off the top of our heads, but we already have the skills to help you find it.
0: Well, let's dig into that, right? Because you know, unfortunately, I often hear uh, people make the claim that, well, you know, libraries, why do we need to keep funding them? You have Google. You have Amazon. Uh, I can get my ebooks or – Who are you hanging out with, Paul, that uh, makes these <laughs> arguments? I mean we, there is a county south of us here in, in Oregon that defunded the public library. OK? These kind of arguments really yeah. happen. And so there is no longer a public library in that county. But yet, you know uh, – is Google going to solve all of my problems? I mean, you know, I know I'm setting you <laughs> I mean, up. I'm, I'm teeing you, you up for, for 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 a pretty easy answer, but I, I think it's it's worth hearing your, your your take on it, Sarah. Why don't you tell me? You know, if I come into your library and and I I've got a research question, um, why might Google not always be uh, the the definitive answer for what I'm investigating? Uh, well, for one
4: thing, you. No one, I think, these days, even like first-year university students, has a often a really great grasp of the authority of um, what they're looking at, the currency of what they're looking at, um, you know, who wrote it, why they wrote it, and when you've got Google, you know, people aren't. There's nothing on the internet that says you have to um, disclaim, you know, oh, I was funded by this person, and that's why I wrote this article, and um, especially in smaller um, communities. Uh, we find a lot of people and the hard one is like legal or medical questions. And it's like, oh, no, that website is like funded by, you know, this one drug company and they have a vested mm. interest in you, you know, deciding that what's wrong with you will be solved by their product. Uh, so we as library staff are trained to, you know, say, look at something and be able to critically evaluate it and also share those critical evaluations um, skills with you so that you can next time be like, okay, um, this is what, what might help. Uh, The other thing that a lot of libraries have done um, for their communities is as, you know, the uh, old fashioned uh, reference books have become, you know, useless uh, is we have um, subscriptions for our community members to, to sort of those paywalled resources um, that are, are, have a bit more credibility, have a bit more um, peer review in them. Um, So like journals,
0: uh, academic journals, or maybe even medical journals, things like that.
4: For sure. And so if someone said, my doctor, you know, prescribed me this, what is it? Um, We'll have resources on hand to help someone, you know, we can't give medical advice, but we can say, here are the resources and tools to help you learn a bit more about this thing. Or if you want to investigate, you know, uh, different options, Here's, here's the suite of tools you can have in order to um, feel like you're getting an unbiased or at least a multiple perspectives on the
0: issue. That is Sarah Felcar. She is a librarian at the West Vancouver Memorial Library. And we're also joined by Sam Mills, who is a librarian at the Vancouver Public Library. They're both in British Columbia, Canada. And this is Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Reismanel. and we are talking about libraries and community media. And I'm also joined by my co host, Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits. And if you want to learn more about anything we talked about on the show, go to Raidersurvivor.com slash podcast. Look for episode number 131. And as we say often on the show, this is a listener and reader supported enterprise. And I wanted to, to kind of point out how your support helps us to do more interesting shows like this one. We actually learned about Uh, The Vancouver Public Library and the interesting things you're doing around podcasting and community media because we were able to attend a conference called PodCon, which happened up in Seattle last December at the end of 2017. And uh, this is the sort of thing, of course, that Eric and I would like to be able to do, but it takes resources. It takes the time to go up. It also takes the money to be able to attend and to have the transport and, you know, and to have lodging to go do these sorts of things. And Seattle's just a few hours away from Portland. It's fairly easy to do, but we were able to defray some of those costs because of support from people like you, where we met some amazing people. That's also where we met Mary Josephs, who we spoke with on a show two episodes ago, who told us all about deaf accessibility in podcasting, something we probably never would have thought of if we hadn't had the opportunity to meet Mary at PodCon. And so these are opportunities to help diversify the voices here on Radio Survivor and to help grow and expand the conversation about community media and how community media can be better And how it can grow. And it's a learning experience for us, in as much as I hope it's a learning experience for you. And that's why I wanna ask you to please help us continue to do this sort of work. You know, our colleague Jennifer Waits travels the country visiting community radio stations and college radio stations. Most of it she finances herself, but we're able to occasionally, again, defray her costs. Because of contributions from listeners just like you. And you can do this a couple of different ways. You can contribute to our Patreon campaign where you contribute an amount every single month. Even as little as a dollar a month really goes a long way to help us predict what money is coming in and what we're able to do as the year goes goes forward and of course if everyone gave a dollar it would add up very very fast go to patreon.com slash radiosurvivor if you can only swing kind of a one time contribution we can take that by paypal go to radiosurvivor.com slash support to learn how to do that we really appreciate anything you can do If you can't donate any money right now, um, help spread the word. Tell a friend about Radio Survivor. Spread the word on Facebook, on Twitter, on other social media avenues. Tell more people about what we do, and we'd appreciate that. Or tell your local community radio station, and maybe ask if they would air Radio Survivor. You can learn all about that at Radiosurvivor.com. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line, podcast at Radiosurvivor.com, because many of the ideas for these shows that help us to sort of expand our horizons have come from listeners just like you. That interaction is great, and your support in all these different ways help us continue to make this podcast, keep the website going, and try and help nurture a strong community media system in the United States, North America, and around the world. We'll now return to our interview with Sam Mills from the Vancouver Public Library and Sarah Felcar from the West Vancouver Memorial Library. You know, one genre of podcasting, and also I see a lot on YouTube now, are sort of, they're, they're kind of brief histories Right. You know, people really like something digging, mm-hmm. you know, 99 percent invisible is a podcast. Lots of people know about which kind of dig into like minutiae and provide kind of background in history. But there's a lot of podcasts and a lot of YouTubers who want to give, you know, the history of the Commodore 64 or the history of a of a particular riff uh, that turns up over and over and over again in different in different songs and, and or, or more popular or more or serious histories. And and I'm wondering, Sam, uh, you work there at the Vancouver Public Library. You have the the inspiration lab where people can come and produce digital media. Do people ever come forward to the desk there and sort of ask? You know, I, I'm trying to work on this video or this this podcast about this topic, but I I could use some help digging in because I've I've been googling and maybe I feel like I have the critical skills to assess whether or not something is is fact or or should be suspicious, but maybe maybe I'm just not coming up with, with actual the history or the or the topics I need. Wikipedia and other people's websites isn't doing it for me. Do mm-hmm. people ever come forward with those kind of questions?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we have, um, well, <laughs> we've actually gotten rid of the reference desks, but we have reference staff on every single floor of the building as well as in our branches um, every day, all day, roving and answering questions. And those are often exactly the kinds of questions they get, whether it's from podcasters or students or university-level researchers. Um, I think a big part of, of what Sarah was talking about, you know, there are these two pieces, right? these two critical pieces when it comes to research and learning new things that libraries can offer. One of them is teaching you those skills because none of us are born, um, you know, digitally literate <laughs> despite, uh, despite, you know, ev- um, terms like digital natives and whatever, to the contrary. And the other piece is, is just the access piece is that there are certain types of information, especially information that is rare or valuable or that a lot of work went into it to gather it and put it together that you have to pay to get because that's how the information economy works. And so, you know, if we can take the small slice of your tax dollars that we have and put them all together and uh, and pay for those subscriptions for you, then that makes all of that knowledge a lot more accessible than it would be if it was just you on your own. And so often, yeah, our staff will be, you know, very familiar with the things that we subscribe to or the things that we have in our, you know, compressed shelving or whatever it is, and, uh, and be able to point you in the right direction. And also just be able to, you know, each one of those interactions, we always try as library staff not to just... Give you the fish, so to speak, but to you know turn the monitor around, show you exactly what we're doing, where we're searching, how we're putting that search together, so that you can do the fishing yourself as well.
1: That's the voice of Sam Mills, librarian at the Vancouver Public Library, where there's the Inspiration Lab, where members of the community who have a library card can come in and record audio or video, podcasts or YouTube. Uh, they're content neutral; you can record whatever needs recording as far as the community needs are concerned you get to set the standard and we're also on the line with Sarah Felkar librarian at the West Vancouver Memorial Library where they have a very similar uh, but a smaller room where uh, members of the community can record themselves and we're talking about this uh, overall concept on radio survivor today the idea that libraries are a place that can serve the same sort of community needs that have been traditionally uh, uh filled by community radio stations and public access television stations, or weren't filled particularly yeah, yeah. well
0: <laughs> in general.
1: And uh, my name is Eric Klein, I'm host and producer of Radio Survivor. I'm here with Paul Riesmendel, and also here is Radio Survivor's Jennifer Waits.
3: Yeah, and you know, I'm curious from both um, both of you, Sam and Sarah, about the overall landscape of libraries and if this is a growing trend to have these multimedia spaces and recording studios, um, you know, and what's the likelihood that our listeners might be able to have access to these types of facilities in their towns?
2: Well, I can speak to, you know, what we, what we hear at BPL, which is we get a lot of inquiries all the time from other libraries in our region and outside of it too, um, who want to know how we went about doing this. Um, and I think that included Sarah, your team, right? When you were thinking about designing your lab, um, certainly i think in vancouver we were pretty proud that we were the first canadian public library to have sound studios but also you know that that means there's there's a lot of work still to be done and i think we are going some way towards uh, demonstrating that there is there is this need um not just in our community but in a lot of others and i think i think what you were speaking to earlier paul too about about you know the the questions about the relevance of libraries and we don't want to we don't want to necessarily throw anything out we still want to have the books we still want to have the traditional research services and the basic computer skills learning opportunities but we also want to keep up with what people need to um, to survive and thrive in the digital economy and I think a lot of libraries are thinking along the same lines for sure
4: and I uh, I'd second that um, libraries, Uh, at all points in, well, public libraries in all points in the last couple hundred years that we've been around have been about providing access um, to learning and um, infrastructure that uh, for leisure, you know, as well as, you know, uh, creation. And people have been using it as like that community infrastructure for for a long time. And as the world changes and as the way that we access and create things, Change, um, you know. There's so many more ways to go from being just, you know, well, not just being on the radio. To now, there's also podcasts, and now there's also YouTube, and now there's yes, ending um, a lot in public libraries, and uh, we do struggle often, um, in especially smaller communities, to be like, well, how can we, you know, do this plus that when we still have such a high demand for certain resources, uh, but we're doing. I think most uh, communities, especially if a demand is shown that their community members, I think we said this at our, our PogCon presentation as well, when people were asking us is if you go to your, even your small town library and say, Hey, we're really interested in this. Do you think there's a way we could work towards, you know, creating some sort of community um, digital content creation hub? Um, Libraries would love to to have that feedback, uh, to have that opportunity to say, of course, you know, let's. Let's work together, Um, libraries, um, not just Vancouver. So I think uh, Vancouver got some um, funding to help out with the creation of the space. And so a a lot of all public libraries, including my own, um, often will partner with other organizations with the expertise or the ability to say, hey, we can provide, you know, this part of the project. And then if you have the expertise or if you can uh, help out with the space or provide a discount on buying microphones or the soundproofing uh, materials, that would be amazing and and help the community grow and be richer because of this project that we all work on together.
2: One of the things that maybe is unique about libraries and and community radio stations and cities and you know all these sort of publicly funded bodies is that we are responsible to the public um and what that often boils down to is that we have to be um pretty nimble when it comes to our our goals and our you know strategic initiatives and we have to be able to back those up with evidence that we're pursuing things the community needs and wants um and so Absolutely. Like express those needs and wants to your library. And also when your library, you know, starts doing things like writing their new strategic plan, which sounds horribly boring, um, they will often hold community consultations. And that's really also the time to to go and tell them that you you know of these things happening elsewhere and you want to see them in your community.
0: And that is Sam Mills. She's a librarian at Vancouver Public Library. And we're also talking with Sarah Felkar who is at the West Vancouver Memorial Library. We're talking about digital inclusion. We're talking about community media and libraries and how uh, folks who want to make community media, want to make podcast videos and such, can can take advantage of the resources that public libraries have to offer, not just only, in some cases, recording spaces like they have uh, at these two libraries in British Columbia, but also make use of the intellectual resources, the research resources, and just the 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 brains there at the library that who who are there to help you find out how to do all of these things. And this is Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Reesman. Also with me is Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits. And public libraries are also a public space and one of the last sort of non-commercialized public spaces that we have, a place where people can gather uh, for around all sorts of different purposes. And I know, I remember back when I saw your presentation at PodCon back in December of 2017, uh, where where both of you presented about libraries and podcasting. One thing I think you mentioned, Sam, is that you've had live podcasts presented at at your library where people could come and watch a, a podcast get recorded. Is it, it my recollection correct? Absolutely,
2: yes. Um, That is something that we're really proud of and trying to do more of, for sure. Um, So the show I was talking about was uh, last year, the Pop This podcast. Um, which you can find online by searching for Pop Does Podcast, uh, did a show in the library. I think they were debating the relative merits of the book and movie of Gone Girl. So they figured that one was a good one for the library space. Um, So, yeah, they came and did a live show and they recorded it and put it out on their podcast feed as well. And uh, and so, yeah, we have, you know, we've had for a long time the facilities at the library to to do live events, right? That's kind of our bread and butter is doing author readings and uh, panel discussions and dance performances at holidays and et cetera. And so marrying that capability with the capabilities that we have in the Inspiration Lab is pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, And also like, you know, any community member author, performer, podcaster, um, can certainly approach their public library uh, about doing a program like that. And if the library and you decide that it's mutually beneficial to partner, that will usually mean that you get access to that space for free. So rather than having to rent out a venue and worry about how much you're going to charge for tickets to make all that money back. Um... The idea is that we take care of providing the space and the tech and usually the marketing as well at BPL. Mm. Uh, And all you've got to do is put on a good show for the folks.
1: Yeah. And does the Vancouver Public Library have its own podcast for these author readings that you host?
2: We don't at the moment. Um, we're really interested in, <laughs> in pursuing that. Um, and, uh, and certainly, I mean, larger libraries than us, like the New York Public Library, have really set the tone for how to do that well. Yeah. Um, and so it's something we'd like to explore. We do have a podcast that we did Back in 2015, when the lab opened, actually um, called Vancouver Special, uh, and that was sort of looking back at the the 20 years previous to that, um, which is how long our central library had been open at that mm. point. And that was a really fun way to kind of bring in all sorts of different community members from you know milestones in those 20 years and introduce them to the space. But uh, but it's something I think we should get back to, and I'm hoping we do.
1: So that was like a oral history of the of the city through the library. Yes. Neat. Yeah.
3: It's really interesting to me when libraries are producers as well. And in the United States, we actually have a few libraries that have their own radio stations. So I love this mm-hmm. idea of, of librarians and, and libraries being podcasters or managers of stations.
2: Yeah, I mean I think with us a lot of the time it comes down to to capacity and right now the yeah. focus especially with the lab being so young is on providing is on using that capacity to provide access to this to our public but I think I think it's a great idea personally for us to to use it more to kind of broadcast what we do further and share things like you know those events that we run further um so it is an idea that's being explored.
0: Well, thank you very much Sam Mills librarian at the Vancouver Public Library and Sarah Felkar, librarian at the West Vancouver Memorial Library, for helping us understand better how libraries and community media makers and media makers of all types can work together and how you can find uh, maybe some resources you didn't know existed just by taking a journey to your local public library branch and asking a question. Hey, can you can you help me start a podcast? Can you help me start a YouTube channel? Can you help me create a uh, a, a, a sort of a, a family podcast, as you called it, Eric, to uh, to record digitally my memories for future generations. It's it's wonderful to hear that all these resources are out there and often in a place where people don't think of it. So thank you again, Sam.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. This was great.
4: Yeah, thank you.
0: Thanks again to Sam Mills from the Vancouver Public Library and Sarah Felkar from the West Vancouver Memorial Library, both in British Columbia, Canada. And if you'd like to learn more about their libraries or anything else we talked about in that interview, please go to our show notes, go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast look for episode number 131. And this is Radio Survivor, The Sound of Strong Communities. My name is Paul rees Mandel. And Sam and Sarah both talked about expanding this idea of what a library is and how it engages with its community and how folks at their libraries have the opportunity to come in and be media makers, not just media consumers. But this really presses the question on community engagement. And this is something which I think is very important for community media as well. There's a big overlap in community media and librarianship and, and, and all of these uh, services that try and, and serve but also engage communities. I'm lucky enough to live with somebody who thinks about libraries and community engagement all the time. Her name is Ellen Knudsen. She has a library in information science degree. She has a PhD for the University of Illinois, where she is also an adjunct assistant professor in the School of Information Sciences. And she is a research associate at the Charles F. Kettering Foundation. And she's here to join us to help expand on this conversation a little bit. So Ellen, thank you for joining us here on Radio Survivor. It's a pleasure to be here. And And the reason I roped you into this uh, is because talking about libraries and community media, there's overlap, right? And in here, we were, we were making something very explicit, right? That it, in, in uh, the Vancouver libraries, there's a, a space where people can create information, create information products in addition to consume them, be readers or taking in uh, databases, microfilm and such. I don't know if anyone does it anymore, microfilm. They're, but they're still from time to time. still from time to time, microfilm and microfiche. <laughs> But you know changing sort of the dynamic there in libraries and this is this is kind of a trend right and part of this as as uh, both Sam and Sarah pointed out is in response to the demands of their patrons the people who use the library and their changing needs uh, in in a new sort of information uh, society but it's not as simple as that I think, and I wanted you to help kind of pull this apart and it's not You know, just a matter of somebody goes up to a desk at a library somewhere and says, "Hey, I'd like to be able to make make a podcast. Can you? Or I'd like to be able to record something. Can you? Can you roll out a studio?" But that there's, uh, it's not just a a sort of demand driven kind of thing, and that many libraries and, and librarianship are trying to expand this notion of community engagement and and maybe you can help me sort of understand that a little bit better. What, what does, what does that even mean? Because I think too often we think engagement just means we ask people what they want.
5: Right. And so I think that there is a shift, although in some ways it's a a return to old ways um, of thinking about the library as a real community center uh, where the shift is, is what does it mean to be a community center changes from time to time. And so I think that's a little bit where some of the responding to uh, the needs of people who are coming in um, helps shape what what those community needs are um, and then what would it mean to be a community center. Um, so now sometimes you'll hear librarians talk about, oh, we're not just the keepers of books Um, But, you know, we're doing all of these, a variety of different things, um, different partnerships with different uh, people in the community and other organizations in the community and really trying to be an anchor institution for the community.
0: And and that makes sense, uh, given what I've heard, you know, with the sense of that, you know, just speaking again about podcasting, I have a podcast, I could perform a live podcast there at the library you know, and sort of change even that dynamic of participating in the programming of the library in addition to being a consumer there. But it goes beyond that.
5: Well, right. And, you know, I um, think about the ways that the library, uh, well, sometimes I, I'm going to back up a little bit. Sometimes I'll say, uh, well, we talk about libraries as partnering with the community. Um, and I think that uh, it's a, different way to think about, well, what would it mean if the library were just a part of the community, a part of that ecosystem that holds a community together and helps helps a community um, to address needs, uh, to uh, have fun, um, and to celebrate the cultural life and history of a community.
0: So it's more immersive. Right, right. I, I think we see the same – kind of discussion around community media. Mm -hmm. It could be a community radio station, it could be public access television, college radio station. Because on the one hand, there's like public media. That's a service model. We create good media for the public. And it doesn't mean there isn't engagement, but it's very much about that service model. And community media often carries this connotation. Well, it's not merely about service, but there's this greater degree of interaction. Obviously anyone can come in ostensibly and do a show, create programming Uh, by and for the community. And yet that isn't always even necessarily sufficient, right? That's sort of an open door model, right? We open our doors, people can get trained, people can come and use the facilities and maybe get on the air. But there's even something deeper in becoming part of the community, I think, that that you're getting at.
5: Right, and I, I think that it, I mean, I think you were saying this a little bit, in this shift from the transactional nature of programming, doing this for you, um, or you, you've expressed a need, so I'm going to help fill it, uh, to doing things with the community. And in my work that I do at the Kettering Foundation, I work with a number of different librarians from around the United States. I also have worked with librarians in Russia, but that might be a separate topic. Um, and, uh, getting them to think about how that, how that change, uh, affects the way that they approach their work that that doing things with and not for even if that for program might be a really great program right um, and so one example that I can I can give is a uh, um, An example right here in Portland where a couple of librarians started having what they just called coffee and conversation with folks in the library. And anybody could come, but they did it in a part of the library where folks experiencing homelessness tended to gather. And their idea was that um, this was a group of people that utilized the library and they weren't quite sure how. The library was in relationship with this group um, and sometimes in relationship, not in not in happy ways. Um, and so just wanted to have informal dialogues to hear what people um, wanted, needed uh, and, you know, just even what they use the library for. So a couple of things that they discovered, um, which may come as no surprise that folks who are experiencing homelessness use the library for many of the same reasons that folks who are not experiencing homelessness, Meaning
0: uh, they like to read, they like
5: they like to, you know, read, they, use they like the to have books. Computers. They like to use the internet, you know, computers. They like to, um, uh, you know, yeah. So just generally all, all of, all of these things. Um, But one thing that they learned also was that this group was very interested in having a writer's group. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so then the library started working with staff and um, inviting in a writing coach um, who could then help uh, form a writer's circle.
0: Mm -hmm. The interesting part about this to me is that this engagement in some ways has to be for its own reasons or or, or that is the end in some ways. And that's, it's often a challenging thing for community media because it's hard enough to put on, you know, 24 sevens worth of programming, whether you're talking about a public access television channel or a community station, low power FM college station or something like that. And it feels often like efforts that don't fulfill that need uh, are not central And yet it's very – and yet I think it it can serve. In the same way, it's interesting to me in hearing the story of uh, the Inspiration Lab there at the Vancouver Public Library where often the librarians and the library staff don't actually have access to the products that are being made, right? They're they're providing the space and sometimes it gets shared. But – in many ways, it it is the process of it of it of it being there, of the opportunity to create these things, and having the help and the community around it. That's important, and it sounds to me, it's similar to this notion uh, that is being pursued here at, in in Portland, Oregon, bringing in folks experiencing hopelessness. Of course, they're already there and sitting down, having having a conversation, having coffee, and you don't. It doesn't have a, a specific objective. Or end to it that you can sit there and say, like, this is exactly what we wanted to see. Well, happen. right.
5: And, and I think that that's, that's very key. And even, you know, when I, I was as you were talking, I was thinking about another conversation that I had with a, a different librarian in a different system working in a very different area. Um, but she was like, well, I know how to put on programs like I know how to do this, and I have programs
0: being like an author talk or reading, right? Or,
5: or, or you know, what, whatever. Here, here's a need. I, I, you know, I can, you know, line up, you know, what needs to be lined up. I know who to partner with. I know how to create the budget for it. Um, and I, you know, I can just do that. But taking that step back and ha- taking that time for those small conversations, even to hear. Um, ways that might be might be small or in some instances a little bit larger that you need to adapt the way that you're thinking about what that programming even is so that it uh, really meets the – fulfills a, a broader need and also this deeper engagement with, with community members. Right,
0: and I think that community media on, on the one hand – you know, it's a little passive, and I don't really mean that, I don't mean that as as a criticism. In that there's open doors, people can come in, they can and they can create programs, programming for uh, your community access television, your your community radio station, and then, and then often sort of delegates that engagement to the producers themselves, uh, with an assumption that is often a pretty good assumption that the people creating programming, creating it for a particular audience, are engaged with that audience. The gap is often when it comes to uh, working with underserved populations, or with you know with people who are not well represented in in the local media, or who are not often regarded, because uh, the barriers that keep folks from being represented or 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 uh, being well served often still keep them from being well represented or served by a community radio station and that it needs to become more proactive and I think that's that's what I'm seeing this parallel in the example you give with the library.
5: Right and I'll just you know if I just say a little bit more about how that some simple changes make a big difference. So if we just go back to the example of the writers group um for Uh, people who are experiencing homelessness here here in Portland um a typical way that a library might form a group like that is to you know work with a work with a writing coach or or a writer who's going to facilitate they say oh I can do this every second and fourth Friday then they put up a flyer and uh and people show up for it or, or, you know, they put it on their web page or they send out email announcements or, or whatever. But it's like it's it's scheduled and then people get invited into it. Uh, what they found with this group is if they did that, nobody would show up. Hmm. So they had to They they still because, you know, you need to be on your facilitators. Calendar, So they still were saying, okay, we're doing this the second and fourth Friday. But they had – through those coffee and conversations, they had built the relationships. They knew who was interested in that writer's program. And so when it was the second Friday and they saw that person at the door, they went, hey, I remember you were interested in that writing program. We're doing that now. You want to come into it. I see. Right. So it was a little less having to – um. You know uh have it well planned and scheduled in because another thing that many people don 't know uh, about folks who are experiencing homelessness is they actually are highly scheduled in terms of where they need to go to get all of the services that right. they need to get by so it
0: um, and it 's true I think for a lot of people in a lot of different stages of life and and that uh, the notion of being flexible in this regard. Um, can be useful,
5: and you know, and I just want to really underscore that notion of the relationship development, and that it isn't this this transaction that we're doing this program for you. Um, but no, we've developed this relationship, and we we know that you're interested in it, and and we know that um, the best way for us to get you into the program is to meet you at the door the day that it's coming and remind you that it's that is going on.
0: Right. No, I think that these are some good things. To get people thinking, and we're going to have to continue this conversation, I think, and, and bring some more folks in uh, to talk about this with you, because uh, uh, if community radio and community media are going to survive, it's going to be evolving with the communities that they serve and are not just serving, but as as you mentioned, that are part of.
5: Right, I, I definitely think this notion of like that. It- that ecology of, of our communities and and how all of these different players are are there to support um, the life of community and, and maybe more to, than to support it but develop it.
0: Absolutely. Ellen Knudsen, Research Associate at the Charles F. Kettering Foundation and Adjunct Assistant Professor at the School of Information Sciences at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Thanks for joining us here on Radio Survivor.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: And thank you for spending another hour with Radio Survivor. If you have any comments about the show, let us know. Drop us a line at podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And we are a listener and reader supported enterprise to learn how you can help us keep making this show. And do any other things we do at Raidersurvivor.com. Go to Raidersurvivor.com slash support. And this show is available as a podcast on every major podcast platform out there. And if you do listen by podcast, we'd appreciate it if you would go ahead and subscribe there. And if there's the opportunity to rate it like there is in Stitcher, there is in Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating even leave us a review that helps other people find the show and we really appreciate it. And we're also heard on great radio stations across the country. If you know a station that would be a great fit for Radio Survivor let us know or tell the station and they can learn more at radiosurvivor.com slash broadcast. My name is Paul Reis and on behalf of myself and Jennifer Waits and Eric Klein